You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. In 2003, Oprah Winfrey used her daytime television platform to warn millions of people that teenage girls were attending parties wearing wild shades of lipstick and performing oral sex on boys. The boy with the most colors of lipstick smudges would win the accolades of his peers. These were called rainbow parties. The story was picked up by newspapers and television stations across the country. Parents were panicking. But did you know there was one nitpicky detail the parents didn't know? There had not been one verifiable instance of a rainbow party, ever. The same goes for colored bracelets corresponding to sex acts, vodka-soaked tampons, and huffing human feces to get high. Parents are naturally worried for their children, and it doesn't seem to take much to send them into a tizzy. It's not just parents. We as people are prone to reacting and overreacting to the first piece of information we receive. Modern media makes the spreading of these new urban legends almost effortless, but false panics and hoaxes are far from a new invention. They have always been with us. I'm Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Most people know the story surrounding Orson Welles' radio play War of the Worlds. It was presented in the form of a newscast detailing the invasion of Earth by beings from another planet clearly bent on our destruction. Listeners thought the broadcast was real. There was mayhem in the streets, as as many as a million people fled their homes or armed themselves and made ready to fight off the alien hordes. We know all about the panic this radio play caused. It was in all the papers. Therein lies the problem. Newspapers of the day greatly exaggerated the situation. To begin with, not that many people were tuned into Mercury Theater on the air that evening. Only 2% of households with radios heard the play, which repeatedly identified itself as such during the performance. Some CBS affiliates even cut away from the broadcast in favor of local programming, further shrinking the potential audience. Most people were listening to the ratings juggernaut ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. This reporter still fails to understand how a ventriloquist act worked on the radio, but it was a different time. Why then, if few people heard it and fewer still were confused by it, did the newspapers, separately and independently, make the situation sound worse than it was? They were motivated by fear. Not of aliens, but fear of the radio. The wireless radio was the first real threat to the superiority of the newspaper as the public source of information. Reporters and editors saw this as an opportunity to prove to advertisers and regulators that radio was dangerous, irresponsible, and not to be trusted. A similar thing had happened in England 12 years earlier, with a fictitious report that an angry mob of unemployed workers were running amok in London, looting and destroying everything in sight. The National Gallery had been ransacked, the Savoy Hotel blown up, 
and the Big Ben clock tower had been razed to the ground. Like any good radio play, the narration was accompanied by appropriate sound effects. A fair number of people did take to the streets, some even fleeing past the famous buildings that had been reportedly destroyed, while others desperately clogged police telephone lines. The BBC tried to ease tensions by reminding people that the report was a comedy skit entitled Broadcasting in the Barricades, ending their message with, London is safe, Big Ben is still chiming, and all is well. You can't trust the BBC, at least you can still rely on Armed Forces Radio, people thought until May 1947, when WVTR in Tokyo began to issue a series of bulletins about a 20-foot monster that had risen from the sea to lay waste to the area. Bullets were useless against this dragon-like creature. Listeners could hear terrified shrieks, people shouting orders over bullhorns, heavy weapons and massive vehicles rolling by. When the beast reached downtown and the intrepid reporter who provided the play-by-play -play sneaked closer, the monster opened its mouth and congratulated WVTR on its fifth anniversary in a high soprano voice. That's right, an hour's worth of breaking news for the station to pat themselves on the back. During the broadcast, station phone lines were tied up with people trying to get more information. Military police were told to stand ready, and Japanese police were told to prepare to go on the offensive. British troops in the area demanded rifles and grenades so they could assist in the assault. All the while, station personnel declined to give more information. They finally admitted the joke when the broadcast was over, repeating this clarification until the end of the broadcast day, though nervous phone calls would continue into the next morning. The brass was not pleased. Five men would be relieved of duty when all was said and done. Commanding officer for WVTR, the two authors of the script, the civilian program director, and the private first class who actually read the bulletins. If official media sources can do all this, imagine what would happen if some nefarious party took control of the airwaves. We don't have to imagine it. Signal hijacking has plagued broadcast media almost since its inception. The 1980s and early 90s were a heyday for hackers as consumer electronics developed at a tremendous pace, giving tricksters and ne'er-do-wells all the tools they needed, from a disgruntled HBO subscriber calling himself Captain Moonlight to the infamous Max Headroom signal takeover of WGN. Though studios tightened information security, hijackings have occurred as recently as 2013, when pranksters in Montana realized their local CW affiliate, KRTV, had left their emergency alert system computer on its factory presets. During the Steve Wilco talk show, the emergency klaxon blared and a text crawl began at the top of the screen accompanied by an official sounding man's voice warning viewers, Civilian authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies as they are considered extremely dangerous. This alert would go out again during the evening's episode of The Bachelor. Aficionados of drop-D tuning will probably recognize that message as the beginning of the track Fight Till You Can't from the Anthrax album Worship Music. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. No major panics were reported, but it didn't help matters when a morning radio station in Wisconsin played the alert so they could joke about it. The problem was their station is designated as a primary entry point station for the emergency alert system in the area. Even with them talking and laughing over it, this triggered the system to automatically send the fake alert out to all local radio and television stations, one of whom replayed it as a legitimate alert. There are no reports indicating the perpetrators were ever identified. This is certainly not the first time zombies were used to fool people. When the British rock group Zombies' single, Time of the Season, became a hit in America in 1968, the band had already been dissolved for almost two years. They were not even aware of this success, and the individual members had gone on to do other things. A hit was a hit and Michigan-based Delta Promotions wouldn't let a trivial detail like the band not existing get in their way. If you think that's preposterous, wait until you hear that there were actually two bands, one from Texas and one from Michigan, which toured different parts of the country, claiming to be the zombies. The ubiquity of social media in our lives can make this seem impossible, but it worked easily back in the days of rotary phones and mimeographed flyers. This was also a time when the music industry, like Golden Age Hollywood, had little respect for individual artists, changing the lineup of bands at the slightest sign of pushback. The band The Drifters went through 60 members in their time. Delta Promotions told the new band that the original Zombies were no more and that they had secured the full rights to their catalog. They hadn't. Delta also failed to mention the existence of the second band. Before launching the Zombie Tour, Delta asked the Texas band to play as the recently disbanded Rose Garden, despite the fact that they knew only one Rose Garden song and that Rose Garden's lead singer was female. Audiences were often disappointed by the fake zombies, which lacked some of the instruments and all of the sound of the original. But the band would be on the bus and gone before any real trouble could start. A charade of this magnitude can't last forever. Things began to fall apart when Delta fielded a fake version of the Animals, which was outed by a member of the actual band Animals. 
When Delta tried to make an Archie's band based on the comic book characters, property owners Kirshner Productions brought their lawyers to bear immediately. Delta Promotions collapsed under their hubris shortly afterward and the bands went home. After returning to Texas, two of the fake zombies, Frank Beard and Dusty Hill, were joined by Billy Gibbons to form the famous and furry ZZ Top. Raising fake zombies is one way to communicate with the dead. Spiritualism, a system of belief based on supposed communication with the spirits of the dead through practitioners known as mediums, is another. When news of Cecilia Weiss's death from a stroke in 1913 reached her son, Harry Houdini, it caused him to faint. Houdini and his mother had been very close. Contrary to custom, the family delayed her burial in New York so that he could travel from Copenhagen where he was performing to see her one last time. Houdini would mourn painfully for months. He would go so far as to seek out seances in hopes of reaching her again, but his experiences failed to bring him closure. One medium in particular sent him on a decade-long quest to debunk spiritualism. There were clues that the seance was not on the level when the medium delivered a happy Christmas message supposedly from Weiss. For one thing, his mother was Jewish. For another, she didn't speak English. That's the story as most of us heard it, and it's a fun one to retell, along with the patently incorrect versions of Houdini's death. He did not die in one of his escape tricks, but from a punch to the abdomen that burst his infected appendix. No, Houdini was aware and skeptical of spiritualism for years before his beloved mother's death. His first seance experience was at the impressionable age of 11, but it didn't take long for schoolboy Harry to smell a rat. He and a friend made a hobby of disproving mediums, and later, knowing the tricks as well as he did, he and wife-slash-stage partner Bess performed as mediums for a time, until he found the deceit too distasteful to continue. The specific incident that has most likely been twisted into the mother's seance story involved author Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife Jean. Doyle became a passionate champion of spiritualism after losing his son in the Great War. In 1922, Lady Doyle professed to channel Cecilia Weiss through automatic writing, in which the medium's hand is guided by the spirit realm. What followed was a series of embarrassing mistakes, which Houdini, to his credit, was graciously quiet about. The Doyles interpreted his lack of myth-busting as a tacit endorsement for spiritualism and spoke of it publicly, forcing Houdini to make his true feelings known. This spotlight was what pitted him against what remained of the spiritualism movement some ten years after his mother's death. After Houdini's death from peritonitis in 1926 at the age of 52, his widow Bess gave spiritualism one more bite at the metaphoric and metaphysical apple, issuing the Houdini Seance Challenge, offering $10,000, the equivalent of $137,000 today, to anyone who could make contact with Harry. The couple had set up a secret code word to be used by the one who passed first to prove definitively that it was them. For ten years, she entertained attempts by mediums to no avail, though one man, Arthur Ford, a pastor of the First Spiritualist Church in New York City, publicly claimed success, even twisting Bess's refutation to bolster his claim. Bess would die seventeen years after Harry, though they would not repose together. Her family was Roman Catholic and forbade her be buried in a Jewish cemetery. They lie an hour's drive apart, Harry in Queens and Beth in Hawthorne.
composer and pianist Alexander Levy, guitar legend Jimi Hendrix, singers Janis Joplin and Amy Winehouse. These are only a few of the members of the so-called 27 Club, musicians and other celebrities who died at the age of 27 through circumstances tragic and often drug-fueled. There is a lesser-known curse in entertainment circles, the curse of the white Bic lighter. This legend holds that many a musical great died with a white Bic brand cigarette lighter on their person. This list has significant overlap with the 27 Club. Some living musicians, like superstitious actors with the word Macbeth, take the white Bic curse to be gospel and won't carry or even use one if it's handed to them. The most important thing to know about this legend is that it is a legend, i.e. a myth. There is no concrete evidence that more dead musicians had white Bic lighters at the time of their death than any other cross-section of society. More importantly, while Joplin, Hendrix, and Jim Morrison are among the more prominent members of this second club, they all died between 1970 and 71. Bick produced the first disposable lighter of any color in 1973. The other most common victim of the white Bic lighter, Nirvana frontman and heroin user Kurt Cobain, had two lighters with him at the time of his suicide, neither of which was white. As an aside, while drugs willingly taken should get the lion's share of blame for Jimi Hendrix's death, there's an honorable mention reserved for the paramedics treating him during his final overdose. They left him unattended and sitting up, rather than lying on his side, causing him to aspirate vomit. We'll leave you today with a hoax from across the pond that is too good not to share. One stormy day during the Napoleonic Wars, a French ship was wrecked off the coast of an old fishing village clinging to the northeast coast of England. The only survivor was the ship's mascot, a monkey in a sailor suit who was washed ashore. The people of Hartlepool had never seen a monkey before, nor, for that matter, a Frenchman. Mistaking its chattering for the language of the enemy, they convicted the monkey of being a French spy and hanged the animal on the beach. Ask the people of Hartlepool if the story is true, and they'll tell you with pride that it is. They've named their football club mascot, Hang Us the Monkey. One of the men to wear the costume was elected mayor three times. Maybe the movie Secondhand Lions was right. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. What you do with that belief, that's another story. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The sage advice of don't believe everything you hear or read is timeless for a reason. It's easy to fall for a juicy bit of gossip and so satisfying to pass on a rumor. Or, as Margaret Houlihan of MASH fame once said, for your information, it's not a rumor. It's something I heard. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.